Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome back. This is an, we're doing another week of the Absite review. The Absite is rapidly appro- approaching, so um, this we're going to continue. Uh, this is a much uh, requested um, topic uh, on Twitter. Everybody's requested that we cover stomach, so we're going to cover stomach today. And I'm here with uh, John McClellan, who everybody knows, and Rowan Sheldon, who's one of the up and coming um, R two. All right, R2s. Uh, I'm currently an R2. Currently R2. I'm actually uh, so, on your team right now. You should probably know oh, that. Oh, yeah. I probably should know that. Yeah. You know, you just seem like uh, so much of an intern most of the time that I, it's hard to believe that you're actually an R2. But uh, <laughs> Rowan's one of our, our smarter residents, so he's going to take us through and answer a lot of these questions correctly. Uh, so jumping right into it, stomach abscite review. So, John, uh, let's start at the basics. Let's start with anatomy. Um, blood supply. Blood supply to the stomach. Go. Uh, so the best way to break this down uh, is if you think about the, the branches that come off, you know, first off the celiac trunk, which gives life to the left gastric, uh, the common hepatic and splenic, but then you think of the left gastric as supplying a portion of the lesser curvature. And also you have the greater curvature, which is supplied by the left and right gastropopoic, as well as the short gastrics. Uh, and then uh, just remember, for your anatomy, sometimes this comes up on the abscite, is that the right gastropopoic is a branch of the GDA. And then you have your lesser curve, which I already mentioned with the left gastric, but also supplied by the right gastric. And the right gastric comes off of the proper hepatic artery, uh, which is uh, which comes after uh, the GDA is branched off. So definitely seen that uh, asked a few times, uh, specifically uh, the branches of the, uh, you know the branches of the celiac, and the one they seem to like is the um, the where the right gastric comes off. So the right gastric it will typically come off your proper hepatic, um, and then your your you know common hepatic is going to branch into your proper hepatic and your uh, gastroduodenal uh, artery. Um, and John, the main cellular, you know, what's the, 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 main cell that's the, makes up the stomach mucosa. What, what kind of cell is that? Uh, it's simple columnar cells okay. throughout the stomach. And as also, you have some, uh, uh, mucus secreting cells in there as well, but that's mainly, mainly in the cardiac gland itself. Okay. So, um, Rowan, favorite abside topic is the different, uh, types of cells in the stomach, where they're located, what they secrete. So when you think about the fundus and body of the stomach, what cells are you thinking about there? What cells live in the fundus and body of the stomach? Sure. So you have two different types of cells there. Uh, you have the chief cells, which mainly secrete your pepsinogen. And it's kind of what I think of as like that's the actual purpose of the stomach is to break down proteins. It's the chief role, so it's the chief cell. And then you have the parietal cell, which uh, releases your acid and it releases intrinsic factor. Um, and so the parietal being kind of what creates the environment of the stomach itself. And what's that stimulated by? I, this is where they, they get you. It's a, the three separate stimuli. You have the, the vagus, which has uh, acetylcholine. And then you have gastrin for, coming from the G cells and then histamine being the third. Okay, so uh, so moving uh, moving down, so anatomically, the, the stomach antrum, what, uh, what's secreted from the stomach antrum? This is the important part when you're when you're talking about your your surgeries for ulcers and and specifically getting rid of all the gastrin because um, you can have retained antral syndrome where you end up with the hyperstimulation of the gastrin due to the lack of of acid hitting these G cells and and downregulating them. 
And so that's that's the big thing that's that's down in the antrum of the stomach. But you also have your some of your D cells um, in that antral area, which secretes your somatostatin and basically downregulates everything. Yep. So G cells, gastrin, that's easy to remember. G, uh, you know, gastrin starts with G. D cells, somatostatin. Um, actually, I just got a practice question about this. Um, so for bonus points, what would uh, what do you think if you had a retained um, antrum, uh, re- retained antrum syndrome, uh, what do you think your basal stomach acid would be? What would the gastrin level be? Just high or low? So basal, basal acid, what do you think it would be? Basal acid would be low, but then your gastrin would actually be high. No, your basal acid would be high. So you have your antrum that continues to make gastrin and it drives your basal uh, acid output of your stomach high. How would your gastrin re- respond to a secretin stimulation test? It would drop in comparison to a gastronoma. Correct. So if you had a gastronoma, so the normal response from secretin is a decrease in gastrin. An abnormal response if you have a gastronoma is that it will rise. So if you have retained antrum, your basal output is going to be high, your gastrin is going to be high, and your gastrin is going to decrease with secretin. Yeah, so you're functionally Um, decoupling your acid cells from your G cells, and you take away the, the negative feedback loop. Right, exactly. Um, so I, I did get I got a practice question that exact practice question uh, recently. Okay, so um, let's move on to some different problems you can have with your stomach. So, uh, what are the different uh, types of gastric volvulus, John? Well, I think the one everybody thinks about is the organoaxial uh, volvulus, and that's most likely going to be the answer if they ask what type of volvulus is a gastric volvulus. Uh, and that's usually treated by, you know, just reducing the volvulus itself and then this fund application to help repair the problem. Okay. So what are your lead points for your organoaxial? If you were to draw an axis um, for your volvulus, because they will ask this. They'll ask, uh, you know, how does the stomach volvulize? So I, we think of the, it would be the GE junction uh, right by your intrasura to the pylorus. Yep. So if you if you draw your access, your you know from your um, uh, your GE junction down to your pylorus, and then the stomach volvulizes around that access, that's organoaxial, and that's that's the most common. Uh, how do you treat that? So you would treat that with a, a reducing the volvulus itself uh, and an anisophonification, uh, and then you make sure you close your cur up as you know typical procedure. Okay. Uh, something uh, that's, uh, that's frequently tested is you have, you know, uh, somebody who's maybe an alcoholic, maybe drinking, they have some forceful vomiting, and then they have some hematemesis after that. What, what is that? Yeah, so the most common thing here would be a Mallory Weiss tear, and, and that's just a, a mucosal tear. Um, so this is typically just EGD and, and clip it functionally, and it's typically along the lesser curve. I think you get kind of at your tether point near the GE junction. Right, exactly. So it, it, they will ask that uh, sometimes, you know, where, where the actual tears occur, and it's on the lesser curvature of the stomach. Um, I think uh, some people often think that, that it's always in the esophagus, but the most common place for those tears is the lesser curvature of the stomach. Um, okay, moving on. So we've talked about, uh, you know, high acid output uh, conditions a little bit. Um, and so let's talk about, uh, you know, your, and we talked about how the vagus contributes to acid production by stimulating those parietal cells to, to produce uh, acid. So let's talk about the different types of vagotomies. Uh, so in, in general terms, what are we thinking about when we think about the two main types of vagotomies that are used today? You can either go with a truncal vagotomy or you go with a more selective vagotomy, either being a selective or a highly selective 
vagotomy. Okay, and how? What, what's a? Just explain this to me. What's a truncal vagotomy? What's a highly selective vagotomy? With a truncal vagotomy, you go well up on the esophagus, and I think it's five centimeters up on the esophagus, and you make sure that you you get the the left and the right being the uh, the anterior and the posterior. And the key there with going up on the esophagus is really to make sure that you get above the criminal nerve of uh, of Grassi, because mm-hmm. um, that's the the typical one that would will still kind of hose you if you don't get up high enough. Um, if you go to the selective vagotomies, you're trying to maintain your, your vagus innervation to the liver. And so you come down below the hepatic branches and attempt to get just your stomach fibers. Where, which one does that, uh, those, those branches to the, the liver, the hepatic branches of the vagus come off of? Your left, right, anterior, posterior? So I always remembered this with LARP, mm-hmm. uh, the left becoming anterior and the right becoming posterior, going along with the, the twisting of the foregut. And so the left one being your anterior is going to go and continue over to the liver, whereas your posterior uh, coming from your right is going to become your celiac axis. Yeah, I think that would be easy for you to remember. You kind of seem like a LARPer to me. I always kind of thought of you as a, as a LARPer. And Jason, remind me the differences, the similarities and differences of the uh, how the emptying the stomach goes for each of the vagotomies. Sure. So uh, both in uh, a truncal vagotomy and a highly selective vagotomy, um, you got to think about your stomach's relaxation. So you you lose that receptor relaxation, that reflex. So when you think about that, that's going to increase your emptying of liquids from your stomach. So both will increase the emptying of liquids. The difference comes when it's solids, and that has to do with your pylorus. So if you have a truncal vagotomy, you lose the innervation of your pylorus, so you're going to have decreased solid emptying unless you perform a pyloroplasty, and that negates that. So then you're going to have, I guess, increased emptying of your solids with that pyloroplasty. With your highly selective, you still have the innervation to your pylora, so you should have normal solid emptying. And you may see that show up as in you have normal innervation because you still preserve the crow's foot that goes down into the pylorus. Um, and then, you know the results of a truncal vagotomy. Um, so if, the, if this does come up, you decrease your acid output by 90%. Um, the increased, uh, there's increased gastrin overall from gastrointestinal hyperplasia, uh, but just due to less exposure to acid. And other things you may get from a truncal vagotomy, you have decreased exocrine pancreatic function, decreased bile flow, um, increased gallbladder volume, think it's not contracting as much, uh, and then decreased vagally mediated hormones. And Rowan, the most common complication that you're going to have after a vagotomy, the thing that the patient is going to complain about. So chances are they're going to complain of diarrhea. Exactly. So these patients will, uh, after any type of vagotomy, the most common uh, complaint afterwards is is diarrhea. And that has to do with the the, the bile acids um, and your sustained uh, MMCs. uh, treatment for that? Uh, because it's due to bile acids, you're going to give them cholestyramine. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Moving on, let's talk about uh, another favorite topic, which is uh, bleeding. Um, so uh, upper GI bleed. First off, what uh, defines an upper GI bleed? Anything above the ligament atrites is going to be an upper GI bleed. Right. Uh, and what's the first-line treatment for any upper GI bleed? As with anything that comes in acutely, it's going to be your ABCs, two large bore IVs, adequate resuscitation, and then specifically for the upper GI bleed, it's going to be early endoscopy. Right. Localize, you know, resuscitate and find the source of your bleeding. So endoscopy, endoscopy, endoscopy. Um, so let's say you 
you do an upper endoscopy, um, what are some different possibilities that uh, that you can see as far as uh, how do you characterize the, the ulcer if you have a bleeding ulcer? Yeah, and they do usually ask this question on the app site in, uh, in regards to what are the chances of re-bleeding. So if you look inside with endoscopy and you see an actively bleeding vessel, then you typically have a 60% chance of that, of that area re-bleeding. If you see a visible blood vessel, maybe the base of the ulcer, uh, you have a 40% chance. And then if you have diffuse, you know, stomach oozing uh, and maybe not able to isolate a specific bleeder, uh, you have a 30% chance of re-bleeding. Right. So, uh, I, you know, I've seen that, you know, this comes up in real life. This comes up on, on board scenarios. It comes up on tests, comes up on rounds. Um, so you, upper endoscopy, you can't control the bleeding. The patient's unstable. What do you do? Uh, OR. I mean, that's the answer for most patients who are unstable, and, and especially on the app site. So, and then also you want to perform uh, or also treat them for uh, empirically for H. pylori. What if they're bleeding um, and they've already been treated? You have documented evidence that they've already been treated for H. pylori. What do you have to do at the time of operation? We also want to go back to your vagotomies as well at that point. So. Right. So you want to if, if, at least think about doing a um, an acid-reducing operation. Okay. Uh, so moving a little bit further down, we talked about some you know gastric ulcers. Uh, so duodenal ulcers. Um, so where do we typically find duodenal ulcers? So this would be in the first portion of the duodenum, in the duodenal bulb. Yeah, the duodenal bulb in the first portion of the duodenum. Um, and they can present in a couple different ways. What are the two main ways that they can, they can present? Well, you have, uh, based on the anatomy, the anterior and the posterior perforations. So if you have an anterior, that's when you're more likely going to have a free perforation into the peritoneum. So you'll end up with uh, pneumoperitoneum. And if you have a posterior, this is where the, the GDA is running behind. So you can have an ulcer kind of necrosing into the, uh, the GDA itself. Right. So anteriors perforate, posteriors bleed. You know, the most devastating uh, bleed is, is when the ulcer, uh, or when you ulcerate right into that, uh, that big gastroduodenal artery, and, and that can be quite devastating. What's more common, a perforation or a bleed? Uh, bleed would be more Bleeding's common. Bleeding's more common. Yeah. Bleeding's definitely more common. So uh, let's go back to it. So you have, uh, again, upper GI bleed. What's your first step? So that's where we go back to our ABCs, two large bore IVs, resuscitation, and endoscopy. Resuscitation endoscopy. So you try to treat these uh, endoscopically uh, with clips, with uh, epinephrine injections, with cautery. Um, let's say they give you the situation where, you know, your endoscopist can't stop the bleeding, the patient's unstable. Uh, what do you do then? And we're assuming we have a duodenal ulcer? Yep. They, so they, you do your endoscopy. You see a, a posterior duodenal ulcer with it's just welling up blood. And they can't control it. So we take the patient to the operating room. Uh, we're going to do a duodenotomy, um, and then this is where we're going to do our GDA ligation. Okay. Um, and the, the important thing to remember here is that this is the three-suture ligation. So not only do you have to get the uh, the proximal and the distal, but you also have to get the transverse pancreatic branch that's that's going to be going medial at this point. Yep. So what do you mean by proximal and distal? What do you what do you mean by that? Where are you going to throw your sutures? See, so if you have a kind of the, the pinpoint crater that's bleeding out at you, you'll get one superior, one inferior, and then one basically to the right side as you're looking at it, which would be medial. Right. That's, uh, that's the, the, that is, in fact, the textbook answer. And uh, bonus points, uh, what, uh, what needle are you going to ask for? What suture, what needle? Uh, I'd probably ask for a 2 vicral on 
or an ovicrol and a UR6. Ovicrol, UR6, right. So you, you you want that that sharp curve of the needle so that you can get down there and, and get that. What do you have to be careful that you don't hit? You don't ligate. What runs in that area that if you, you ligate with the artery, uh, you can have trouble? Well, you definitely don't want to ligate the common bile duct. Correct. So Correct. you'd be very careful, especially when you're throwing that medial stitch. Okay, so let's move. Uh, so that's your posterior bleeding. That's the surgical treatment of a, a posterior bleeding duodenal ulcer. Uh, how about an anterior perforation? What operation are you going to do in that situation? So your go-to operation here is a gram patch um, using a mentum as well as an acid-reducing procedure uh, only if the patient has been on PPI prior to surgery. So. Yeah, so let's, let's flush that out a little bit. What do you mean by a gram patch? What is that? Uh, so you, you would throw two sutures into the anterior portion of the duodenum uh, and then bring up a piece of omentum. And then using those sutures, you would tie the omentum uh, to the anterior portion of the duodenum, uh, cinching it down, not extremely tight, but enough to cover the hole. Yeah, so the, classically, you know, the, the, the gram patch, uh, you don't primarily close the, the, the hole itself. Um, you'll put, you know, I don't think there's a number on the sutures, yeah. two or three sutures, full thickness, you know, silk sutures. You'll, you'll create a tongue of omentum, flop it up to cover the hole, and, and patch uh, the hole with the omentum. Um, you know, nowadays, a lot of people, if the, if, depending on the size of the ulcer and depending on how healthy the tissue, you know, looks around the ulcer, um, they will do a primary closure and then patch um, over the top with a tongue of omentum. But uh, I think for the abscite, yeah, a gram patch, um, use an omentum. And then you, you yeah, of course, have to think about uh, their H. pylori um, status, if they've been treated for that. If they haven't been treated for that, um, you, you, you don't need to do an acid-reducing uh, um, uh, procedure. But if you know they've been on PPI and they've been treated for H. pylori, you, you at least have to think about that. And uh, on, along those lines, uh, Rowan, so what, what is the treatment for, for H. pylori? So there's a couple different ways that this can present on these test questions. Uh, I know that there's both triple and quadruple therapy. Um, and so the, the standard is that you do amoxicillin, clarithromycin, and a PPI. Uh, for your quad therapy, you can add bismuth to that. Um, but I've definitely seen, I think, cicillin, flagell, and bismuth. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it, it'll show up in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, moxicillin, clarithromycin, and and um, and a PPI, um, and then you can there there are some places that do substitute out uh, metronidazole. What's the best test for to test for H pylori? Gold standard would be an EGD with biopsy. EGD with biopsy and histology. What's the most sensitive? believe that's the antibody test. The antibody, yep. So the serum um, serum antibody test. What is the best test for documenting resolution of an H. pylori infection? That's where you do your urease breath test. Right, urease breath test. Because the, the other ones aren't useful anymore. Yeah, yep. So let's say you have a young patient who presents uh, with you know no real risk factors. They have multiple duodenal ulcers. They have ulcers that are not in the first portion that are a little more distal. Um, uh, what uh, what do you have to think of and rule out? So you must be thinking this uh, patient gastronoma or Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Uh, yeah. is certainly something you want to put in your differential. And how do you diagnose ga- uh, gastronoma? couple of different tests you can perform. Your uh, The first thing is just growing a gastrin level. Uh, and and usually, what would be a diagnostic number? 
a diagnostic number is usually greater than a, a 200, but you also, it would be significantly diagnostic if it's in the thousands. So yeah, over a thousand is kind of the, you know, this is a gastronome. I have uh, definitely seen it where they've given a gastronome presentation and they only have a gastron, a gastron number of like 300 though. So what would you do then? You would also do your, your secretin stimulation test. Correct. Okay, so uh, again, still on the still on the subject of ulcers, uh, still on the subject of even H. pylori, um, but uh, let's just talk about a little bit about gastric ulcers. There, there's several different types of gastric ulcers, and sometimes I'll describe an ulcer to you, and, just, and you'll have to say what type it is. So what are the different types of uh, gastric ulcers, John? So you have type 1 through 5, and uh, type 1, uh, I usually think of these the low, lesser curvature ulcers that are along the body, and, and this is due to poor mucosal protection. Uh, and then I'm going to group type 4 ulcers in with this as well, but type 4 ulcers are higher on the lesser curve along the cardia, and they're also due to poor mucosal protection. And then I group 2 and 3 together, where group 2, or sorry, type 2, uh, where you usually have two ulcers, you have ones in the lesser curve and as well as in duodenum. Uh, and this is due to high acid secretion. And then you have your type 3 ulcers, which is usually a prepyloric ulcer, and also due to high acid secretion. And then you have your type 5 ulcers usually on its own island, and that's usually used to, to uh, NSAID use. And they can occur uh, diffusely uh, throughout the stomach. Uh, so you, may, you already mentioned it, but uh, it's a common question. So again, what types are associated with high acid output? High acid output, you need to think of type 2 and type 3 ulcers. Exactly, type 2 and type 3. And the way, the way I always remember that is it, it actually has to do with the, the, um, the way in which, um, or I'm sorry, the behavior of H. pylori um, and the way it colonizes the stomach, but it's the more distal uh, ulcers. So the ones that are distal in the antrum, the ones that are the duodenum are associated with high acid uh, secretion. Uh, surgical treatment? Uh, so truncal vagotomy and antrectomy are your mainstay treatment for these patients. Uh, and then you also may need to consider a separate ulcer incision uh, if you can't include the ulcer uh, in your antrectomy itself. But why is that so important for gastric ulcers specifically? The one reason you do this is that uh, you want to make sure you exclude cancer in these patients. And any patient with an ulcer, you need to make sure they don't have a gastric uh, adenic or somewhere. Well, any patient in a gastric ulcer, what about duodenal ulcers? How often are those associated with cancer? Minimally in comparison and to hardly gastric ulcers. Hardly yeah. ever. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the, your reconstruction. So what are your different, you do, let's say you do an antrectomy. Um, uh, what are your different types of reconstruction that you can do? So the three I think about are your, uh, we obviously can do your vagotomies with these patients as well. So that's kind of uh, one step uh, before you do your any resections, but your Bellroth one, your Bellroth two, and then your Rue and Y uh, reconstructions. And your Bellroth one, uh, you're hooking the the stomach directly back up to the duodenum, whereas in the Bellroth two, you're hooking it to the jejunum. Yeah, you're just yeah, exactly. So I, if if people out there don't know the difference between a Bellroth one, Bellroth two, and a Rue and Y, uh, first off, you got a long way to go. Uh, but uh, secondly, just go look, just Google it, look at a picture. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, Bill, what's, if you had your preference in a young, healthy patient, which of those reconstructions are you going to give them? I would prefer to give them a Rue and Y uh, uh, reconstruction versus any of the Bill Roth procedures. Right, because what are some of the problems? Uh, Bill Roth 1, you hardly ever see anymore. Uh, yeah. Bill Roth 2, what are some problems you can have with the Bill Roth 2? Yeah, and this is a question actually gets answered where you have a patient who had a Bill Roth procedure performed and they're having symptoms such as dumping as well as alkaline reflux. And your reconst re reconstruction actually is one of those procedures that helps reduce those actual symptoms. Uh, so Jason, can you remind me the you know, the complications you may get with each of those procedures though? 
Yeah, so uh, again, uh, you know, the Bill Roth run, you, you won't see, I've never seen on a test, I've never seen in real life. Bill Roth 2, um, some of the problems you can have, you know, there's name syndromes and name problems with this. Well, one, you can have an obstruction of your afferent loop. Um, so this can present with a patient with, uh, a lot of times they'll give you a patient with nausea and, and vomiting, PO intolerance, and they'll have a big bout of bilious emesis and their pain will get better. So the pain's improved by having this bilious emesis. And that's, that's due to a, um, uh, a transient or intermittent obstruction of their afferent limb. And then there's the afferent loop syndrome where they have overgrowth of bacteria um, in their afferent loop, and that can uh, present uh, with um, uh, you know, megaloblastic anemia if you're B12 efficiency, and it has to do with an overgrowth of bacteria in that afferent loop. Uh, and then there's a, a bile, a, you know, reflux uh, gastritis. Uh, so you have a chronic gastritis from reflux in the bile. And, and Rowan, what's the treatment for that? You have Bilroth 2, you have, uh, uh, you know, significant symptoms from uh, bile reflux uh, gastritis. What do you want to do for that patient? So that's when you convert the patient over to a Rowan Y. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, I, th- I think Ruin Y um, has become, you know, the preferred reconstructive uh, technique, uh, sp- for especially for, you know, young, healthy patients that, that can tolerate the procedure. And one way I've seen that asked is uh, they'll ask uh, kind of how do you stop this from happening in the first place? And it's just making sure that your your limbs between your pancreatic biliary kind of inflow and your stomach are at least 60 centimeters uh, okay, so another very high yield, you know, lots of testable questions is uh, the gastrointestinal stroma tumor, so so a gist. So uh, so just some quick hitter, high yield. Um, what's the receptor associated with the gist? That'd be CKIT. They're all CKIT positive. And what is what is it? What is a CKIT? What is that? It's a tyrosine kinase. Right. So it's a it's a tyrosine kinase uh, receptor. Um, and what's the tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's uh, frequently tested and it's treatment for, uh, that can be a treatment for, for GIST? It's Gleevec or Imatinib. Um, and I think that the, the really interesting thing here that I've seen one question on was that these almost universally become resistant to Imatinib after about three years, which is why they're not standalone primary treatment. It's not the primary treatment for for most of these gists, um, you know, we only use imatinib in in certain situations. Can you kind of remind me what exactly those situations are? Uh, yeah, so on those, you really want to look at the pathology report. Uh, for well, one, it's it, it has to do with the size of the tumor. So you know, generally, um, you know, tumors greater than five centimeters uh, is kind of the the standard answer for patients who get treated with adjuvant therapy. Uh, with Gleevec, um, or you look at the number of mitosis per high-powered field, and usually the number is five mitosis per high-powered field. So again, greater than five centimeters, greater than five mitoses is what you want to be be looking at there. Um, and what about uh, your, your your resection margins for a gist? Generally negative margins will do, um, but the book answer is you want a good centimeter. Right. I think, the, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to be on the outside this time. Um, you know, you essentially want negative margins, but I think if they give you a, a one centimeter, I think that's, that's an adequate margin. What about microscopic margins? I, I think you just leave it. Yeah. You don't need microscopically clear uh, margins with the gist. Uh, so other, you know, other uh, tumors of the stomach. Um, so let's talk a little bit about lymphoma. There's a couple different types. So let's say you have a, um, a maltoma. Um, John, uh, what is the, you know, what's the, the, going to be the board answer for treatment for a maltoma of the stomach? So not surgery. 
your your answer should be triple therapy antibiotics uh, due to the relationship with H. pylori. And also, you can also use radiation therapy, too, if this is not uh, regress in response to the, the antibiotic therapy. Right. So the vast majority of multomas will regress if you treat the, the, the um, underlying cause, which is generally H. pylori. Um, other lymphomas, um, uh, so you know, interestingly, the stomach is the most likely location for an extra no, uh, nodal lymphoma. I've seen that asked a few times. Um, and what type of, uh, specifically, what type of lymphoma um, are these uh, lymphomas of the stomach? So non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, specifically B-cell type, which so, is also the most common type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right. So a B-cell lymphoma of the stomach. And, and how do you, what's the treatment for that? Do you cut them out or what do you do? Uh, so chemo and radiation uh, is the mainstay option for this, these patients. Um, you can, there is an exception uh, to this, though, is when is a tumor is a stage one uh, and confined to the gastric mucosa itself. So, Jason, I remember that a lot of the stuff that I, I read about the stomach, there's just a bunch of buzzwords that you need to remember. Um, can we just kind of run through a couple of those real quick? Uh, sure. Okay. So let's talk about, let's go back. First off, let's go back and start talking about ulcers again. So uh, uh, Cushing's ulcer, what do, you, what do you associate that with? So that's going to be your head injury patient. Yep. So head trauma followed by gastric ulcer. That's a Cushing's ulcer. And uh, Curling's ulcer? Just like the curling irons, this is going to be your burn patient. Yep. So your curling's ulcer, your curling iron, you burn your hand with the curling iron. Um, so that's a gastric ulcer associated with the burn. And uh, Cameron's ulcer. And that's generally at the, the pressure point, um, kind of on the side of a, a hiatal hernia. Okay, so uh, let's say you have uh, gastric cancer metastasis uh, to the ovary. What's the, what's the name for that? That's a Kuchenberg tumor. It's one of my favorite ones. Okay, and then you have a, um, a enlarged uh, supraclavicular node um, associated with a metastatic uh, a GI tumor. Uh, yeah, that would be a Verkau's node. And then, Jason, what about the supraumbilical node? That's your uh, sister, sister Mary Joseph node. Okay, and so last topic for the day um, uh, is uh, talk about hiatal hernias. So uh, there are four different types of hiatal hernia. Um, John, just walk us through. What are the four types of, of hiatal hernia? So there's four types of hiatal hernias. Type 1, I think of as your sliding hernia. And then type 2 is your purely periesophageal hernia, where part of the uh, stomach slides up and through the hiatus, but the LES remains in a proper position. Uh, type 3 is your combined sliding and parasophageal. Uh, and type 4 is where you have the entire stomach into the chest, uh, plus another organ such as the colon spleen. Uh, and you think about it where type 2, 3, and 4 all need eventual repair, uh, although in type 2 uh, or in 3, these patients you need to be also risk stratified if they have you know significant comorbidities. Um, maybe it's better just to watch these patients. You want to avoid surgery in a frail elderly patient. And I think the, the important thing here is that type 4 involves another organ, and that's its its major defining point. Because Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you can have the entire stomach up in a type 3 mm-hmm. as long as you don't have another organ up there. Right. So as long as we're going for you know buzzwords, uh, Rowan, what is uh, Borchardt's triad? So chest pain after vomiting with fluid in the left chest? Nope. So you had chest pain, and you have then you have retching without vomiting. And your inability to pass an NG tube. So that's your triad associated with uh, with the parasophageal hernia. Makes sense if you think about it. You're going to have chest pain if you have a parasophageal hernia. You're going to be retching. You're not going to be able to vomit because your, your 
stomach's going to be herniated, um, and you're not going to be able to pass an NG tube. So Borchardt's triad. Okay, so John, uh, so what's you know what's your treatment um, ultimately going to be for these paraesophageal hernias? The treatment, uh, the final repair would be essentially a, a Nissen fundification, but you know it's a little more complicated rather than procedure, performing this procedure simply for GERD, where you actually need to reduce the entire hernia, excise the sac, and then perform the fundification. And Jason, remind me what the uh, the tenets of a Nissen fundification are, please. Uh, so, as you said, for parasophageal hernia, you need to reduce the, the hernia and reduce the hernia sac, excise the hernia sac out of the chest. Um, then you need to, uh, you know, do an adequate mobile, mediastinal mobilization of your esophagus so that you mobilize at least two to three centimeters of esophagus intra-abdominally. Um, you need to reapproximate your crura. Um, there's multiple different ways of doing that. We won't get into that. Um, you um, uh, perform your uh, wrap. Um, uh, over a large, usually like a 50 or 54 French bougie, um, and, and kind of a loose floppy wrap and, and recreate your, your, um, your, your natural valve there to prevent reflux. Um, and, and sometimes you even need to, you know, pexy the stomach, uh, in, into the abdomen in order to main that intra-abdominal, um, location. Um, Usually, on on the ab side at least, uh, some of the more commonly tested things are, uh, you know, complications after uh, a Nissen uh, fundification. So, Rowan, what is the the most common thing you're going to hear? You, you have a patient that, that you just performed a fundification on. What's the what's the complaint going to be? What's the most common complication overall? So, the most common complaint is dysphagia. Yep. So dysphagia. So uh, how do you sort that out? Um, let's say it's it's early post-op. It's um, you know your post-op day two, post-op day three. The patient's complaining of dysphagia. Yeah. So a lot of that is expected, and it's one of the reasons why we put these patients on liquid diets afterwards. Um, but if you're concerned about it, you can get a barium swallow mm-hmm. and actually take a look at the the lumen itself. So I think a key distinction there is is, is going to be, is the patient tolerating their own secretions? If the patient's not even tolerating their own secretions, uh, that's that's a patient that you need to think about uh, taking back to the operating room because what's the most common cause of, of dysphagia um, postoperatively? It would just be swelling of that wrap. Or the wrap's too tight. The wrap's too tight is, is generally the, the most you know the most common uh, problem uh, for for dysphagia. Now, I, I, as you say, the, the edema from the surgery itself can contribute to that, um, and most of these patients will res- respond to uh, conservative therapy as the edema goes down. Um, the the dysphagia improves. But I have seen questions where they'll give you a patient who's you know has foamy saliva and they can't even tolerate their own secretions. And the answer in that in, in that instance is going to be go back to the operating room and take down your wrap. If they're just having a little bit of dysphagia, you treat them conservatively, wait for the edema to go down. So Jason, what what if I can't actually get the esophageal dissection that you were talking about, and I actually I actually can't get the esophagus down into the stomach? Yeah. So this is the often tested, hardly ever seen Collie's gastroplasty, um, where you actually elongate the esophagus by coming down onto your, um, uh, separating or tubularizing your stomach a little bit further by dividing um, along your greater curvature. Um, I've, I haven't yet even talked to anybody that's actually done that. Usually you can get enough mobilization of the esophagus. If you, if you can't get enough uh, esophagus, the, the answer is generally you need to dissect tighter into the mediastinum. Uh, but that Be will show up on yeah. tests. That will certainly show up on tests and potentially even the abscite. 
Okay, well, I think that covers it. Uh, that was a, a quick and dirty review of the stomach uh, for the absites. Certainly not comprehensive. Um, I think mostly right. Uh, so uh, thanks, uh, John, of course, and uh, to our special guest, Dr. Sheldon. And Jason, thanks for giving me the day off tomorrow for doing this. I appreciate it. Over my dead body. Until next time, dominate the day. <laughs>